Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com if you're like me, you spend lots of time pouring over maps, looking at weather data, all in an effort to help predict when and where my best times to hunt will be. It'd be nice if there was a reliable source with all this information in one place. Enter the Spartan Forge app. Unlike some other predictive apps on the market, Spartan Forge was created from military combat intelligence experience tailored for hunters and stands at the nexus of machine learning and white-tailed deer hunting. No more man-made algorithms. This is a predictive model based on real GPS collared deer data, historical and predictive weather, and the next level of mapping imagery, all at my fingertips. I've been using the iOS app this season, and it has replaced all my other mapping tools. Visit SpartanForge.ai and sign up today, or head to your iOS or Android app store. Use the promo code TRUTH to save some money and download it today. Mobile hunters, if you're interested in upping your mobile game, then head to tetherednation.com and check out their saddle gear. There are a few things you can actually buy that will help you become a better deer hunter or give you the freedom to hunt any tree or any situation. This is the reason why I started saddle hunting in the first place and why I use Tethered's gear. I can honestly say that Tethered's saddle gear has changed how I hunt for the better. Big tree, little tree, from the ground, it doesn't matter. I'm untethered by my gear to hunt the best setup for the situation, instead of hunting for a tree that my gear can use. My current core setup consists of the Phantom Saddle, Tethered One Sticks, and the Predator Platform, along with an assortment of their accessories. So if you want to up your mobile game, head over to tetherednation.com. Welcome to the Truth From A Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, brought to you by Spartan Forge. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 327. Today, I'm joined by Travis Glassman to talk about decoy and ground hunting mature bucks in the wide open country. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Dreary weekend, man. Uh, I know my buddy's up in the north piece and got uh, yet more snow. So I was talking to my buddy Tom because I was chomping at the bit to get out to, you know, the north piece to finally do some scouting. And I just can't. I can't catch a break with the weather. Uh, it's either raining or snowing or icing or um something. <laughs> so at this rate, it, it feels like I'm not going to get there till June. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm joking, of course, but that's kind of how it feels because uh, they got more weather in that area again this weekend. And uh, I asked my, my buddy that lives up there um, if he was out, if he could just kind of take a look and see what the ground cover uh, looked like. So I could make my plans for this weekend to see if I was going to make my way up there. And uh, he went out and uh, 
it was a couple inches of snow, which you know isn't isn't terrible, but uh, he managed to slide on his rear end down the side of a a mountainside uh, because basically it was a couple inches of snow on top of several inches of what had was snow, then rained and then frozen, and you know was nothing but like a sheet of ice essentially. So with that, we are still delayed on that, and then of course here locally this past weekend it was just you know rain all day. Um, all day Saturday, which was really the only day I had to uh, had to get out and do anything. So I tried to use my time a little bit more wisely, got some stuff done around the house, so feeling pretty good about that. So with that, we're going to go ahead and just jump into today's show, have a super cool show for you guys today. Um, I have on Travis Glassman. Um, Travis is from Kansas. You know, he kind of talks a little bit about where he's from when we, uh, when we kick off the podcast. Um, but I've followed him for a little while, as you guys, you know, that have been listening to this for any length of time know that, you know, the, the ground hunting bug has kind of bitten me, at least in the right applications, you know, where it makes, uh, where it makes the most sense, uh, particularly whenever I've been out in the, the Midwest and in the Plainsy kind of areas. And, uh, and so I've really just been over the years past, probably three years talking to people, whether it's on the podcast or even just, you know, uh, outside of the podcast, exchanging text messages, phone calls, whatever the case is, picking people's brains about hunting from the ground and trying to get, um, better at it. Now, the, the sad truth of the matter is, is that a lot of it is just, uh, um, trial and error. You, you try things, you do things, and then you screw it up, uh, cause you can kind of understand it conceptually. And, and, and until you actually have to do it, um, it usually plays out a little bit different. You make a bunch of mistakes, which I have done, and I've kind of explained all those things to you guys uh, over the past two seasons. Uh, the previous two seasons being out in the uh, in the plains uh, chasing whitetails. However, Travis is really good at it. You know, he lives and grew up in that area, and he didn't start hunting on the ground. He kind of gravitated toward it as he you know developed as a as a hunter. And we kind of talk about that. And he just manages to get it done on really mature animals in and even an area that's probably I would say is probably harder to hunt than even the plainsy kind of areas that I've been, where he has even less kind of ground cover, less trees, basically less of everything, and uh is is knocking down mature animals, you know, whitetails for sure, but you know, antelope, elk, like whatever it is, like he's He's got that Midas touch and is just uh, and just getting it done. Beyond that, he's a super good dude and one of my favorite people so far to kind of talk to um, in relationship to ground hunting. If that's not enough, he also films it from the ground. So in an, in a, in a, a style of hunting where you can't get away with anything really, um, he's also kind of taken a camera out into the woods and uh, and managed. I think this past season, for the first time, was able to capture the full shot you know, the, the arrow penetration on the, on, on the, on the whitetail, um, and everything self-filming everything from the, from the ground, which, uh, just kind of blows my mind. Cause I have a hard enough time doing that in a tree with some cover. I can't imagine doing it out in the wide open. So with that, we're going to go ahead and just jump into today's show. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today I've got on a fellow that I've been uh, following for a little while. If anyone who's followed this podcast for any length like of time knows, I've been uh, a little bit infatuated with uh, um, ground hunting. And so I've been kind of doing a dive. You know, I've talked to my buddy Jared Scheffler in the past. I've talked to the Zach, you know, Zach Farrenbaugh in the past about this. And then um, this fellow that I have on today, I was watching some of his videos and he's just got a killer way of hunting on the ground, decoying, and just getting after it with uh, a high rate of success, and that is none other than Mr. Travis Glassman. What's going on, man? Oh, not too much. Just enjoying a beautiful Sunday out here in Kansas. Uh, we're finally breaking through some of the winter weather. We've been dealing with snow, and uh, I guess I don't remember how many days we've had in the past around that zero-degree temperature, but it seems like this year they're just lingering, so it's 
Today it's like 65 degrees and fairly calm, which is uh, somewhat unusual for Western Kansas. So enjoying that day for sure. I actually have a a baseball practice this afternoon. I'm coaching a nine nine and under team for um, one of my boys. And so we're looking forward to getting outside and and doing some baseball stuff this afternoon. Nice, man. That's awesome. Uh, When you said baseball practice, I was was thinking maybe you were throwing some heat. Maybe you were in (laughs) an old man's bat league. <laughs> no, um, I, I have been known to uh, join some of the men's leagues and co-ed leagues in the past, but right now uh, I'm, I just turned forty uh, a year and a half ago, so I'm I'm getting to the point where I'm starting to transfer that to my kids and and not uh, get out there and try to hurt myself anymore. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. My, so my father-in-law played uh, he played college baseball, and <clears throat> if he was probably a little bit bigger because uh, he's short in stature. If he was taller, he might've had a, an opportunity to, to play professional baseball at some, at some level. Mm-hmm. And he played, yep. you know, I always refer to it as old man, wooden bat league. He played that up right. until like, he was probably, I'm 44. So he, you know, between my age, your age, he played, you know, till, and was still, uh, and was still pitching. I loved playing baseball growing up. The funny thing is, is my brother-in-law, every time I go back home, this was all through my thirties. Um, he would always have a, a catcher's mitt around. My father-in-law would. So, uh, every time I'd go back, my brother-in-law would be like, Hey, let's, let's go out in the yard and throw some heat. You know, he liked to catch <clears throat> and right. for whatever mm-hmm. reason I had, I had a pretty decent, like fastball that I could get some movement on and had, and I had a nasty curve, but I was only good for about 30 throws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <You> know, <laughs> the, the, the shoulder just doesn't take it like it used to. But, uh, if for me, right. my, uh, I'm a glutton for punishment still though. So I'm like, I'm like head deep in jujitsu right now. I actually just got back right. from the gym. Yeah. Which is also not great for the shoulders, but, uh, you know, yeah. as, yeah. as, as I so, like to say, it's making me harder to kill every day, which I do like. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, jujitsu is, uh, it's gaining popularity or at least, mm-hmm. you know, some of the, the podcasts I listen to, some people are engaging in that. So, uh, something I've never tried, uh, my boys, uh, my, one of my boys is just getting into wrestling and mm. we weren't really a wrestling family. Um, but we're really enjoying that. And, uh, it's something that, uh, I'm interested in now, but I played a little bit of college baseball and I ended up dislocating my right shoulder diving into first on a pickoff play. I ended up uh, kind of skipping my hand over the bag when I dove back in, hit my elbow, shoved my shoulder out, couldn't throw for a year. And uh, as an outfielder uh, with a decent arm at that time, uh, it was devastating. I couldn't yeah. couldn't move on and do anything else. It was kind of a, a higher powers way of saying you're done. You know, let's, yeah, let's look at family. And uh, let's uh, let's think about changing our priorities. So, yeah, it's funny how things work out. That's right, man. It's there's always uh, the universe uh, always gives you signals, you know, to pay right. attention to, you know. Yeah. And that's awesome that you have. Uh, I wrestled all growing up. That's kind of how my you know interest in jujitsu started. Was just you know mm-hmm. always growing up. Truth be told, as we're recording this today is the Big Ten finals for for wrestling. So I'm meeting okay. a buddy of mine to watch. Uh, to watch that. So I'm, I'm excited. I'll be watching from a, a farm man to see how things go. If you ever need any help, man, yeah. I'm, I'm here to help if you need any, uh, tips awesome. on training at home and stuff like that and things yeah. maybe he could do on the, on the side. So. Right. No, I, we could use all the help we can get because again, it's not natural for me to just be a wrestling coach. So I'm, I'm always looking for outside, uh, influences because yeah, it's not me. That's for sure. Right. Awesome. Well, we can certainly talk about that, uh, after, after the podcast, mm-hmm. but, uh, man, I know we, you started to allude to it just a little bit before, uh, before we started talking, you know, sports and stuff like that. But, uh, if you don't mind, just kind of give a little bit of background about yourself, you know, where you're from, what you do for a living, mm-hmm. just so kind of people have a frame of reference. Sure. Yeah. I was born and raised in Northwest Kansas and, uh, I've 
basically lived here all my life with the exception of about a year where I lived in eastern Kansas going to school uh, after high school. Then I ended up trans- transferring back out to western Kansas to uh, to a junior college, played baseball, and that's when uh, the story happened with the shoulder and everything. And uh, ended up after uh, two years of baseball, um, if anyone in college sports knows that it's a full-time job and, and you don't really get anything else done. In fact, I I didn't even have time to make any money for myself when I was playing baseball. So I was so um, tired of leaning on my parents for money. I decided to start going to work after two years of college and uh, basically just uh, started, you know, like anybody at the bottom. And uh, I started working for a natural gas pipeline company as a, just an operator, you know, doing maintenance on some of the pipelines and stuff like that. And have uh, slowly started working my way up and I'm now in leadership and I've been in a leadership role for about six years now. And, uh, I enjoy that. I have a great crew, great team. Uh, we're all the families around us. My wife and I were both born and raised in the area, so we have grandparents close, and uh, the kids are heavy in activities. I have kids that are uh, four, eight, and eleven, and so they are. I got two two older boys and a younger daughter, and uh, yeah, we're just crazy, crazy times right now as a dad and uh, uh, doing coaching and uh, still trying to get hunting in. And so my passion is hunting and. Uh, filming the hunts and just doing, doing, you know, sharing everything with friends and family, basically. That's how it all started as far as the filming goes, but uh, um, still just doing that as a hobby. I, I love every second of it, whether it's turkeys or deer or going out west for an elk hunt or antelope or anything like that. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my background. Just uh, been in the area, haven't really left, and uh, been working for this current company for about 17 years now. So, um, married, like I said, a local lady who's uh, the the best lady I know, Kendra is her name. <clears throat> in fact, if you look at some of my videos, um, she's starring on a couple of those. So she's she's also a bow hunter. So uh, I'm just loving the outdoors with her and now the kids. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of my background. Awesome, man. So I'm always interested, you know, because my wife appreciates hunting. She grew up in a hunting family, so she's always been around it. Um, she has no interest in, in hunting, you know, even it's the, it's the cold weather to be on, to be honest. She doesn't like to be cold. Oh yeah. So that's the, that's the, that's the break point for her. Yeah. But how do you, uh, I'm always interested in whenever, when couples hunt, because I'm always kind of mm-hmm. interested in, in how you kind of divide and conquer that. Like who gets the primo mm-hmm. spot? Like who gets to go out when the good front hits and, and things like that? How do you manage that? Well, that has changed over time. So um, it used to be obviously before kids, you know, her and I would go out and, and I would basically guide and, and help her try to get her deer. Um, and she has slowed way down on the hunting just because when I am out, obviously she has to be home with the kids. Um, luckily, you know, we do have some grandparents that are close. And so sometimes we're able to drop the kids off and just her and I go out for the day. And, and that has all changed over time because it used to be, you know, we, we did do a lot of tree stand hunting and ground blind hunting, and I would prepare in advance and get everything set up to where, um, you know, I would either drop her off at a stand or a blind, or most of the time I would join her and try to film. Um, and, and like I said, now it's just changed so much that when we do get a, a day out, we are thinking, okay, how can we be most efficient? And, and we, we go out and we'll start at a good glassing spot. And, you know, first thing in the morning as the sun's coming up and we'll try to locate something and basically just try to cover a lot of ground either with our glass or by driving roads, you know, in, in areas where we know, and then, uh, trying to find a target buck, uh, something decently mature and getting bedded down and just spend the day trying to work in on him and, 
and uh, use decoys most of the time, but we'll get into that. And so, yeah, it's just uh, a different, I guess we're trying to find the most efficient way because we don't have a ton of time together for sure. So, right. um, so that's kind of made my strategy change a little bit over the years. We don't, you know, it, it was in the beginning, her and I, um, you know, before we had kids, we were just looking for time to spend together out in the outdoors. And uh, it was, you know, had all the time in the world, you know, we could leave after work and go scouting. And then on the weekends we had all weekend and, and we would just sit. And now we, we look to uh, getting it done pretty quick. So right. um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's, that's how that's, that goes with her and I anyway. So Right. Yeah. Right. So I know you, so kind of two questions, I guess I'll ask the the short, maybe the shorter question first and then the longer question second. So how did you get into to the filming aspect of things? Because I know, because I mean, your videos are great. Like I've been, I, I was actually watching them this morning before I went to jujitsu class. Um, and you just do, a, you know, not to kind of bury the lead. I know we're going to talk about ground hunting a lot here through the, you know, the remainder of the podcast, but you know, like I struggle with it even whenever I'm in a tree, you know, I try to force myself to do it. Cause I do love the footage. I like, if nothing else, I like to watch, look back when I have an encounter and kind of watch what the deer right. did, even if it's not one I want to want to shoot. I just like to watch the behavior. Cause I think you can pick a lot of stuff up that maybe you get so caught up in the moment of the hunt that you don't pay attention to the, maybe the nuance detail, especially if it's a quick encounter. Right. Um, right. I've tried to film once or twice from the ground and it was, it was those two times where I was like, yep, this ain't happening. Like I was like, <laughs> the camera's going to stay in the truck. It's not coming with me if I think I'm going to be on the ground. So how did you, you know, how did you right. get into, uh, into filming, especially from the ground? Yeah. Um, I, I think I just, ha- I've always had that passion to share. Um, obviously the main driver is you can always go home and tell your friends and family how awesome something was, or, you know, you want to prove that you were successful and, and you did it the right way or whatever it is. There's, there's several aspects that I love about filming. Number one is just sharing it with friends and family. Um, number two is, you know, when you're successful quite often, and I'm, I'm not bragging at all. Um, people tend to think, Oh, is he doing it the right way? Or what's, what's going on with that? You know? And so I absolutely love documenting everything so that everyone sees exactly how it all went down. Um, that's probably one of my, you know, one of the things that really drives me most is just, you know, I want to document everything just because I love what I do. I want to tell the story. And I also want to show people like, you know, this, this can happen, you know, you can be successful quite a bit and, uh, it's all on film. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Nice. Now you do, you do a really good job. Like I really enjoy just like the, yeah. the, the perspective that you show and it's just, mm-hmm. you know, if you've not, if, if you've hunted from the ground any like I have been recently and it's a newer skill for me that I'm acquiring, it just gives a deeper appreciation for how challenging it is that what you're doing, right. because you know, everything right. is amplified on the, uh, the ground. The one part I like whenever I do film something is like, we'll have friends over, uh, that maybe aren't hunters, you know, maybe we're having like a little, you know, dinner gathering or something like that. And they'll ask me how my season was and I'll talk to them about it. And if I filmed anything, you know, I'll throw it up on the screen on the, you know, the TV in the basement while we're hanging out downstairs and kind of show them and they'll see like how close I'm getting. They're like, how close is that? And I'll be like, Oh, that was like 10 yards. Or like you get that mm-hmm. close. And it just gives them a different perspective, you yeah. know, cause they think of, especially in Pennsylvania, they think of hunting as like gun hunting. And there's like a little bit of a right. negative con. There can be a negative connotation to that, to a degree, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, culturally, however you want to cut it, like there, there just is sure. in certain, in certain circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they see how close I get all of a sudden, like they have a different appreciation for hunting because 
I didn't shoot it from 200. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but for them, the fact that I got closer and I was doing it with a bow, they're like, oh, like you really had to like plan this out. Like this wasn't just like you happened along and ran into something. You know what I mean? And so I like that aspect of it for sure. Right. Absolutely. And to kind of back up and, and answer your question a little bit better. So, you know, starting from the beginning when I just wanted to share the hunt with friends and family, it got to be an addiction and a passion um, almost as, you know, almost as much for getting a successful hunt on film as it was to shoot a specific animal or whatever. So like, I feel like my success, I wasn't successful unless it was all documented. And, and I, I, I'm, I don't celebrate as a hundred percent win unless I feel like I'm able to lay down all the footage to tell the story of how it all happened and, and to get the shot on film. And I mean, there's so many things that goes into it. It, It's obviously to, to what you alluded to, it brings a whole new challenge. And so um, I started off with just, you know, a fairly cheap camera and then I started upgrading camera gear. And then um, I was, uh, involved with a another show or film crew for a short period of time, and I learned a lot from those guys. You know, basically it, it went from me just turning on the camera when the deer was coming in and shooting it to okay, now let's think about you know let's take some some nice scenic shots to tell the story about where we're hunting. Let's let's um, maybe have some interviews and let's show some reactions and some different maybe some different camera angles and all of those little things that you don't realize are a thing before you getting in, you know, start getting into it. Um, those become very important. And, and my wife gets very frustrated because I'm constantly stopping to take a panoramic shot or I'm constantly putting a camera in her face or stopping to tell the camera a story or to catch people up on where we're at. You know, we started this morning and now we're, you know, crawling and now this deer ended up blowing out of here so we gotta you know go back to the glassing spot or whatever so there's just so many things that go into it that people don't understand um and that's what i've become addicted to is just telling that story and and you know i i feel like i've evolved uh if you watch some of my earlier videos it's just simply turn on the camera and here's a kill shot and then yeah i was successful so right, right. um so yeah no it's it's become an addiction and i absolutely love the film side Nice. Awesome. Well, I always look forward to whenever you drop new ones. Cause one, I know it's going to be an interesting and cool hunt and it's going to be from the ground most likely. Right. Um, so yeah. there's a little bit of a uh, selfishness there on my part. Um, <laughs> yeah. but before we, uh, before we start to dive into things, man, how did you, how did you start hunting? Did you grow up in like a, a hunting family? Was it just like a, you know, PA heavy hunting heritage state? So it's almost a birthright. You turn 12. I mean, you're in the woods before that with your, with your, with your dad, your granddad, like whatever it is. Right. But when you're 12, you know, that's at least whenever I was growing up, I think they can do it a little earlier now with some like youth stuff. But when mm-hmm. I was growing up, it was that 12th birthday, man. Every kid that I went to school with, like you just had that targeted. It was like a 16th birthday for a driver's license back then. You know, it was like I right. turned 12. I get to go to hunting camp. I get to go hunt with my dad, my uncles and all that stuff. You know, so it was just a natural thing for me. So I'm just curious if it was, you know, a similar thing for you. Yeah, so I have two kind of hunting influences in my life. One is my uncle Jerry, and uh, he he started, and I don't even know what got him into hunting necessarily, but um, he kind of got my dad into it, and then my dad started taking us boys. I have a brother and then a younger sister, but my, my brother and I uh, primarily started hunting together when my dad started taking us, and then we went with Uncle Jerry a lot. Anyway, um, we started rifle hunting. We no, no one ever really taught us bow hunting. Um, so my uncle Jerry did a lot of rifle hunting for deer. 
Um, and so we kind of went along. I shot my first deer with like a 30, 30 lever action, um, at 10 years old, you know, yeah. with, you know, rifle hunting. So, um, that's kind of where it all started. And, you know, as, as most people understand, as soon as you, um, experience an encounter with an animal out, you know, in the wilderness, it, you either are addicted or not. Well, I was like a hundred percent all in. And from that point, you know, I was, you know, every chance I got, I would always jump in with somebody, whoever was going. Um, so basically 10 years old, I was going younger, um, just to kind of go with my dad and watch him shoot something or whatever. Um, but that's how it all began is, you know, someone in the family is just willing to take us along. Um, and then, uh, my second influence was, is, a is a buddy's father named Marvin. And he, um, he started out, uh, he got me my first bow. Um, so his boy, Daniel was my best friend in high school and, uh, he, Daniel was ready to move to a different bow. Well, Marvin knew that I had never bow hunted and he asked me if I'd be interested. And so he kind of gave me Daniel's old bow and I started shooting and, uh, that was probably 14, 15 years old. And so I would jump in with uh, Marvin and Daniel and we would go to some public land here in Kansas. And, you know, we would jump up an old rickety tree stand back in the day. And, you know, I just remember, um, sitting and watching animals, um, for the first time, you know, a lot of times rifle hunting in wide open spaces, you're spending a lot of time in a vehicle driving around and glassing and, and maybe getting out and making a move on something. But, this was the first time I had actually sat in a tree stand and witnessed uh, up close and personal deer movement. And that's kind of got what, that's what got me hooked on bow hunting is uh, just that those up close and personal encounters. And, you know, I just absolutely love nature. It's just the, you know, the best stress reliever for me is just to be out there and just enjoying everything at slow pace so oh man um that's where it all began is i started bow hunting um as soon as i picked up that bow and then uh, as soon as my buddy daniel and i got old enough to drive we were just you know we wouldn't go out for basketball in high school just because that was bow season and we would at 3 30 we would have hour and a half two hours to uh run out and jump in a tree or whatever until dark and you know we were doing that almost daily so right uh i owe marvin um you know, probably a lot of gas money because we burned up. Uh, he kept filling <laughs> that old Dodge truck up with gas, you know, um, for Daniel and I to get out of school and, and haul butt out to the uh, tree stand. So, yeah, right. that's awesome, man. And I know I was watching uh, the one video. Your brother was with you and, it, you know, yeah. it, it sounded like at least that you guys kind of really grew up together, bow yeah. hunting, you know, helping each other out and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the truck comment you just made you know, said yep. that you guys kind of, I don't remember if you said you pulled your money together or something, but you ended up with like an S10 because it got good gas yeah. mileage. Yeah. So about that same time when I started bow hunting, uh, my brother and I, um, we started kind of doing our own thing, you know, cause Daniel and his dad were kind of doing their own thing. And so, um, my brother and I, we got our money together and we got this little tiny S10 pickup and that's what allowed us to kind of get out to the tree stand together. And so, yeah, we, we started out, um, not a lot of money growing up, you yeah. know, but, uh, yeah. and of course our first vehicles were, uh, whatever we could afford, you know? And so yeah. anyway, yeah, we, we were able to uh, work together, get out the tree stand one way or another. Yeah. There's something to be said about those. Like, well, I think, you know, a lot of people go through these types of things and in, in, in anything where, especially if you're young, you start off with, you know, very little means. And that is the, uh, the mother of invention, right? <laughs> like right. where you, there's, it's, there's something you want to do. You just yeah. figure out with what I got. Like, how do I do the thing I want to do with what I got, you know? 
it's life lessons, you know. I think everyone needs to struggle once in a while to be able to put into perspective, you know. Right now, my kids are way more spoiled than I was growing up. Just my my wife and I are fortunate enough to make good livings, and uh, you know, they're probably not struggling like like we did. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's something, man. I mean, it's funny you say yeah. that because my wife and I've had that same. Con- I have a daughter; she's fourteen, and uh, she's an only child. We're not going to have any more any more kids, you know, and. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot growing up and, and, uh, and certainly my wife and I are better off than our parents were. And she doesn't really, especially being an only child, she doesn't really want for anything. If it's just something she wants to do or an experience she wants to have, like we can figure out a way to, you know, make sure she, she does that. And so we've talked about, you know, so she does jujitsu as well. Um, and I put her in jujitsu and I was like, this is my payment. Like, cause she does like equestrian riding classes and like, you know, other stuff that she's into. And I was like, you know, I need to manufacture hardship for her because she, like, I had it growing up. Like, we had it growing up just because we didn't have a lot. But I also, like, I wrestled and that was like, that was hard and like, it was challenging. Mm-hmm. Someone physically imposing themselves on me was difficult day in and day out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I just want to manufacture challenge for her so she understands what it's like to struggle in some capacity, you know? Absolutely. And then, and then yeah. learns to fail and learns to take that failure and learn something from it and build from it and, and, yeah progressively get better and stack blocks on top of, you know, a good day on top of another good day on top of another good day. And ultimately that's how you're going to reach your goal. It doesn't just like show up, you know? And so, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with, with that, man. I think it's important. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons in in bow hunting that kind of teach you that too, if you let it, you know, some people that just look at it as like, I'm going to go out and just try to kill something, man, you're missing the picture. You know, it's like, cause there's so much value beyond the release of an arrow whether you're in a stand or on the ground right. that you can take that'll, uh, that'll enrich your life. Yeah. Speaking on that, um, you know, we all, if you bow hunt, you're going to experience heartbreak. And mm-hmm. it, it was such an obsession to me at one point in time that, you know, everything in this world revolved around bow hunting. And if I, if I didn't get the animal, if I failed, you know, it was the end of the world. And you know, as I've gotten older and understood, uh, you know, family and life and different perspectives, you know, you, you change your perspective, obviously, but yeah, it's, uh, witnessing hardship or disappointment. Uh, we fail as parents if we don't teach our kids that, uh, every day is not just going to be rainbows and butterflies, you know? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of maybe not having hardships, man, it looked like you had a, had a pretty good season this year so far, or at least not, so, not so far, but in 2022. Yeah. 2022 is good. Um, I still haven't got my Turkey video out. It was not as, as long as I normally would like, but, uh, Kendra's video is up her Turkey video. So we got her a Turkey. Um, we were not able to get my oldest son a Turkey. Unfortunately, we had a lot of close encounters, but just didn't quite get it done with him. Um, I finally filled my tag. And so that, that, uh, hunt is still in, in editing right now. Um, as we are almost to April again. Um, so, uh, and then, um, yeah, so starting with antelope, um, we started out hunting in, uh, some antelope out here in Kansas and uh, I was able to, to make a really good stock and a really good shot. Uh, my buddy Jared was filming over my shoulder and that's kind of something I didn't touch on earlier is all this filming, um, heavily depends on a quality, um, person who's willing to be alongside you, um, whether it's me filming someone else or a buddy or my wife or whatever, uh, willing to spend the time over your shoulder. So it's, it's a double commitment. Um, so when you say it's so difficult to film on, on the ground, I finally this year was able to document a hunt on film by myself, filming myself on the ground, 
Still didn't get the shot on film, but it was close. And so I think uh, if you was if that you look the at that, uh, was that the was it a mule deer? Uh, I think I watched that one today. Yeah, it was uh, the story of Loppy is his name. Loppy, that's it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, he had kind of a lopsided looking rack, and we had had some history with him. But anyway, um, you know, I he had stepped out of the frame right when I was getting ready to shoot, and then I grabbed the camera and kind of watched him go down. But anyway. Um, so yeah, it's just amazing how hard it is to do what we do, try to get it all on film on the ground, especially, but anyway, back to the season. Um, so the antelope success was, was awesome. Um, my buddy Jared is filming me. Um, that was actually my first antelope with a bow. I've shot some with a rifle, um, as a resident, um, there's not a lot of antelope numbers in Kansas. And so it's, it's like every seven years we can draw a tag with a rifle. Um, but then archery hunting, we can get a tag every year. Um, however, it's about, it, well, it kind of overlaps with deer season. So our deer season starts, um, kind of toward the second half of September. And, uh, basically it starts with muzzleloader season, but you can also bow hunt. Uh, but you have to wear orange during those couple weeks of muzzleloader season, which is what I ended up doing this year. Um, and then, uh, kind of about the same time we do some archery antelope as well, if we choose. And a lot of time I just haven't chosen to spend the time out needed to shoot one. Well, it's, it's extremely difficult for one and two, I just didn't, you know, don't have a lot of time to dedicate. Um, if you kind of research and, and kind of listen to some of the antelope hunters, you know, the success rate obviously is like 10% or less. I mean, it's just very difficult to get close enough with an antelope to an antelope with a bow. Um, anyway, everything was right this year. Um, the conditions were right. There was some wind in our favor. Uh, there was some kind of, we had a really bad drought this year and, uh, some of the corn, failed so it was like half as high as it normally is so it was just like basically falling over on itself and they didn't even pick some of it um so anyway the antelope would feel more comfortable normally they don't like getting close to a cornfield edge because they don't know you know they know danger is near i mean there could be a coyote you know sitting right on the edge of the cornfield uh which they could you know close the distance pretty quick anyway um for whatever reason this buck had a doe pinned down it was in the middle of rut and uh he was somewhat close to a corn edge, but the, again, you could kind of see through the corn because it was so bad. I mean, just really dried up and shriveled. And so we were able to use what little cover we had and crawl along that corn edge and get within bow range. And uh, he, he was just kind of standing, quartering away. And if you watch the video, you'll see just tucked a beautiful arrow right behind that uh, last rib up, you know, quartering away. And it just unbelievable shot. So, um, yeah, just a fun hunt. And a good shot, you know, you go through all the motions and you envision the shots. And uh, a lot of times they don't go where you hope they do, but that one did. So it was, <laughs> it was a, a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, then transitioning to the deer, like I said, uh, whether whether I ended up shooting a deer before, I think I might have shot the deer before. Anyway, uh, that story of Loppy, the whitetail, he's, he was like a upper 170s whitetail and just an awesome deer. We had been, uh, earbud fell out, uh, we had been... Uh, basically following that deer for oh man we've, we've had trail photos of him since he was like four years old and we kind of estimated him this year at probably seven and a half i think yeah um and so he you know he had been eluding us and turns out he was a buck that had been bedding within like 200 yards of a main gravel county road um now it was a, a deep drainage and a lot of vegetation and and plenty of cover but i kept getting pictures i had i had permission across the road from where I ended up shooting him, but I had never asked for permission on this specific piece that I shot him at this year. And, uh, he ended up being 
on that piece. And I, I feel like now that I kind of put all the puzzle pieces together, I feel like he was under my nose right there, you know, bedded in those summer months um, near that road for a lot, you know, pretty much his life. Right. Um, anyway, got, got trail photos of him across the road on the, the piece that I was always able to hunt. And I was like, man, he's, he's getting here, but he's, he's only getting here. Like, you know, he's, he's still at dark after, you know, in the afternoon. Um, so I knew he was close, but I didn't know how close and, and I didn't know why he was showing up and where he was showing up. But anyways, um, kind of took a step back and, you know, put some cameras in a couple of different spots. And what I, what I think really helped me out this year was again, the drought, um, water was, was at a minimum. And I was able to find a natural spring and it was on that new piece of property across the road. Um, and I was able to, to hang some cameras over there and figured out, you know, he was coming in once in a while to water before dark. And so I ended up setting up over on him and uh, basically with the mindset, OK, he's going to use the wind to sit check that water. And I want to be downwind of that. And I ended up being about oh, 100 yards downwind of, it, of the water hole. And sure enough one evening it all came together and he came in like 50 yards downwind of that water looking down at the water which was looking away from me perfect situation was able to come to full draw move the camera on my own tripod sitting in kind of a little natural blind i made and uh uh, yeah delivered a like a 45 yard arrow and it was the rest is history there but um anyway after that um ended up having some success with my little brother um i'm still editing that film or no, actually his is up. And then I was, I was editing my, my buddy Jared's, uh, whitetail film. It, it should be coming up here pretty quick, but anyway, you haven't seen everything that we were successful with. I, I thought this year being a drought year was going to be very, uh, slow and mm-hmm. almost disappointing. Uh, the antelope came together, my deer came together and then little brother, um, got a nice mule deer, which is on one of my videos. And then, uh, uh, my brother, my buddy Jared shot a really nice whitetail, uh, kind of toward the end of November, almost Thanksgiving time. And, uh, just a really awesome mature buck that was also a ground hunt you're going to enjoy. Um, so I was awesome. filming there and, uh, he, he delivered an awesome arrow at, yeah, it was, it was an amazing shot there too. So anyway, that one's still uh, being edited right now. So anyway, that was kind of my season. Um, good antelope. Heck, heck, of, a, heck of a year, man. Yes. Yes. For heck, sure. heck of a year. The, uh, Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Man, I'm curious, um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you started off tree stand hunting. So I'm curious, like when you made the transition to like ground hunting and what was it that made you want to make that, make that change? Because I feel like everyone has like a seminal moment, like if they do want to start to ground hunt, you know, that's like, yep. you know, and there's, there's a, there's a hunt this year that I was, uh, that I had that like after I was listening to like some of your videos and I watched some of your videos, like you mentioned something in one of them that made me think back to that hunt to where it's like, I really, I, I, I underplayed my hand, I guess I should say. Cause I started off in a tree 
and and I'll tell you what happened here as, as we go. But I'm just curious, like what made you want to make that, make that change where you were like, all right, that's it. I'm getting out of a tree and I'm just going to be on the ground. Well, I think looking back, um, a lot of the tree stand encounters that I had, especially, you know, even in the middle of the rut, um, I've, I've, I noticed that the deer that I had an opportunity at 10, 15 years ago when I was tree stand hunting, um, were good deer, but they weren't the alpha bucks. They weren't the the big mature, take no crap off anybody bucks. You know, they were, yep. they were like the three-year-olds that were cruising that maybe got kicked off of a, you know, a doe because of a more mature buck kicked him off. And now he's out looking again or something like that. Well, then I had kind of a light bulb moment when a buddy took me out. It was around Thanksgiving time. Um, and he, this was a mule deer hunt. And he had a, a mule deer doe decoy at the time. And he took me along and, and he said, you know, I, I, I've spotted this buck and I think we can get him decoyed in. And I had never messed with the decoys at all at that time. And uh, turns out there was two mule deer bucks by themselves after the rut, no does in sight. And he, he showed me to take a, a doe decoy. and. Obviously, a buck's testosterone is still at a high level at Thanksgiving. I mean, they're, they're still wanting to rut, wanting to breed. So he showed this decoy at like 150 yards. And it took a while. The bucks laid there, and they get up, got up and stretched. And, and he kind of flashed that decoy around. And sooner or later, they, they just start single file coming right in. And he's like, hey, you getting ready. You know, you, I was behind him, and, right. and he had this decoy up. And I'm like, okay. So I shot the biggest of the two at five yards over his shoulder, which obviously it takes some trust in a bow hunter and a partner to uh, understand uh, <clears throat> how to operate a bow around a partner. Um, but that was the, my, my light bulb moment where I was like, this is a very efficient way of doing this. We're taking advantage of a buck's testosterone level, his wanting to breed. Um, and then I started doing that and, and kind of, I started talking to the owner of Heads Up Decoy at that time, and I've become very close friends with Garrett uh, with Heads Up Decoy, um, and we started talking strategy. And he and I have worked together over these last 10 years to kind of really hone in the, the best way to approach this. And the whitetails are a different animal. Uh, a mule deer is a herd animal, and uh, I feel like if you show a doe decoy, it's less intrusive. And anytime a mule deer sees a lone doe, they feel like I need to have that doe in my herd. And so they're going to, at some point in time, it may be an hour, it may be two hours, they're going to get up and they're going to try to go round you up or scent check you to bring you into their herd. Well, a whitetail, you're taking advantage of his more aggressive behavior where we switch to a buck decoy at that time. So Anytime I, I, my best scenario that I, I strive for is let's find a whitetail buck. Let's find him pinned down with a doe during lockdown. A lot of people hate hunting lockdown because deer don't move. Um, I'm looking for ways to find those bucks with those does during lockdown. So I'm, lo- I'm, I'm really glassing on vantage points and maybe, you know, out here we have the luxury of having some more open territory. So we're able mm-hmm. to put some eyes on them. Um, but I always think to myself, if I was in a tree stand and if, if there was five acres of CRP 
and I could see a buck pinned down with a doe out in the middle of that CRP. I'm getting down and I'm grabbing a decoy and I'm going to go make something happen rather than sit there and just hope like heck he, he decides to push his doe your way. Um, so that's the difference for me. But anyway, um, that's how that all kind of started with the ground thing. Um, I realized there was a, a whole nother world out there. Um, a, a whole nother, I mean, you could be in the action daily in a tree stand. Yeah. You may not see a deer. Um, even, even if I mess it up on the ground, I'm in the action. I had a heck of a hunt and now I've got a camera to film it and I can go tell my buddies like, I almost got it done or, you know, he, he, he knew something wasn't, wasn't right or, you know, whatever it is. And, and so that's what I like. That's, that was a turning point for me. Not saying I don't sit in a tree or a ground blind anymore because there's times where just like this September that I ended up getting my buck that way. So, you know, right. Yeah. It's, it's more of having that tool in your toolbox and that, you know, if I need to get into a tree, if that's the best way Mm -hmm. to kill this deer, it's just using the right kind of strategy for the, you know, whatever that deer or that situation is calling for. But I'm Mm -hmm. glad you mentioned about getting down because, so this is what happened to me this year. And after watching, I I, I think it was in one of the videos you had mentioned this, or you just mentioned it just now as well. There was one deer that was local to me that I was willing to kill. Like I didn't have a whole lot of great inventory for this year. Um, uh, I had some good bucks that were kind of like two hours North of me, but it's a piece I'm not super familiar with. So I'm still, still kind of learning it's mountain ground. It's just, it's huge acreage and just big mountains, but local to me, I had one deer that I knew of, got a picture of him late in the, uh, late in the fall. Like I think it was like September 27th. And there's a specific date in this particular area around a community scrape that turns on every year. Like I've watched it for multiple years. It's like, uh, October 18th ish. It'll ebb and flow like a day on the, you know, it might be the 17th or it might be the 19th, but it's like in that 17th, 18th, 19th is like the day it's going to pop off. And that's usually the first time I'll see the, like the most mature deer in that particular area will make a mistake and show himself at that community scrape, like usually that day. And so, so in 2021, I had an encounter there and I screwed that one up. Just like, I couldn't tell what deer it was. He came in and I was too late for me to draw. didn't have any cover this year. I was in the same tree and the one deer that I was willing to kill, uh, shows up at i think it was 10 o'clock he bedded 40 yards from me downwind of that scrape and was scent checking it now i sat in that tree and watched him and glassed him for like two hours at 40 yards just making sure he was still there because he was like through some brush and the way i saw him was i saw his antlers kind of move like i saw the light change as his antlers kind of moved in the brush and that's mm-hmm. how i knew he was in there because i didn't watch him come into bed i just kind of caught his antlers moving as he was as he was laying there moving his head and I sat there for two hours and watched him. He got up and conventional wisdom would say he's going to walk to that scrape, scent check it, and then go on his merry way. But the wind was the way he was bedded. He was just scent checking it while he was laying there. So when he got up, he stood up, he milled around that bed a little bit, and then he just headed direct north of me and walked out of my life, right? And if I had thought about it, the thought crossed my mind, but I was stubborn. I thought about it because as soon as I saw him, I was like, I'm going to wait for him. I don't know when he got here. It's like, so I don't know how long he's been laying there. I was like, but if he stands up once and lays back down, I should get down and I should try to go over and stalk. Cause I had enough wind sound cover to like get down and like make a move, you know? And the wind was right to where it's like, I had, I had just an off wind so I could actually go almost toward him and get close. You know what I mean? And, uh, and he stood up and he laid back down and I was like, all right, that's my opportunity. Cause he's going to. He's probably going to bed for probably like another hour before he stands up and does whatever he's going to do. 
And I was like, no, 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 he'll come to this scrape. So I sat in that tree and he walked out of my life. And yep. like you, you saying this just reminds me painfully of that hunt because I had the opportunity to get down out of the tree and make the move on him. And I had the scenario set up right, had the wind cover, had the wind to my advantage, advantage where it was blowing to him, but I was off his wind just enough that I could get close to him without blowing up my, or blowing my, uh, my scent in his face. And that to me was like the quintessential, like why ground hunting is so important and how it can be so effective, especially where I live. You know what I mean? Because, right. you know, when you're in the East and Midwest, like you said, like you don't always have like these glassing vantage points, a buddy of mine in West right. Virginia, they got these big old, uh, like old strip mines that they like then, you know, put warm seasonal grasses, let them grow up. And they basically turn into like big CRP kind of areas. And it would remind you almost the inverse of like Kansas where everything's like you're up, but you're looking down and like these big Valley fields kind of where mm -hmm. in Kansas, it's more of like you're up looking kind of like over flat ground or just like undulating ground or whatever. Right. So you do get some of that in the East, but how it can be effective, I think here. And I think too many people don't consider it a, a an important tool for them in the East is actually watching that observation, especially if you're in and around a bedding area and watch them bed and then get down and make, make a move. Would you, would you agree with that in the East? There's a lot more opportunities and people kind of give credence to ground hunting. I, I feel like, yes. I mean, always know, but most times or oftentimes I think people overlook an opportunity um, mm. just because, you know, it's always like, Oh, I'm just going to slip in here. And if it works great, if he comes by, great. But if not, I'm going to slip out of here and, and have some hunts for future. And, and I understand you always have to weigh your options of, okay, am I, am I running the risk of messing this up? If I push him out of here more than once or something like that, then is he going to be back? Is he going to, you know, be pulled off his normal pattern? And I understand the reservation to get down and do that. Um, if, if you're running the risk of leaving too much scent or pushing him out or whatever, but, um, especially in November, I would always recommend if you have an opportunity uh take a handheld decoy sit at the bottom of your tree you know throw a stump on it or whatever and just keep it there and and if if you feel like you have an opportunity to climb down close the distance and present a decoy throw a grunt out there maybe a snort wheeze take advantage of his testosterone level it mm -hmm. is going to likely make him do something that is going to be in your favor um now in your situation being middle of October if you can slip in there, um, you know, quietly without a decoy or whatever, you know, maybe it's a dominant buck and maybe a decoy will work at that time. Obviously he's scent checking that scrape because he wants to know who's in the area. Mm -hmm. So he's already, you know, maybe, you know, was he an older deer? I mean, I assume he's one of the, yeah, yeah. I mean, place, around, right? around here, you, you're not going to get, uh, like seven and a half year old deer necessarily. Cause just right. heavy gun pressure and stuff like that. But usually, you know, uh, when I saw his body from the trail camera picture, I was like, eh, he's a four and a half year old. So for, or right. for around here, he's pretty close to as mature as you're going to get. Yeah. So it would be a 50, 50 chance at that point in mm -hmm. time, whether you present a decoy, you know, and, and he may react, um, with dominance and say, no, I'm the boss and I'm going to come over here and figure out who's trying to come in here. Or, you know, to your point, if, if you had some wind and you just wanted to slip over there and try to get within bow range without, you know, making yourself known with a decoy. Um, then yeah, that would have been a great opportunity too. But yeah, I, I feel like to answer your question, um, a lot of times people don't understand, um, the opportunity that's right in front of them or they, it never crosses their mind to even try. Yeah. So yeah, I, I feel like you can be successful a lot of times if you just take, you know, take that initiative and try to make something happen. 
Yeah, I think for me, it was painful like looking back on it because I was literally debating it while I was sitting in the tree. And the bummer was, was that part of my thinking was kind of what you were suggesting where I was like, all right, so this deer was close. I know he's in the area. Um, I'm going to wait for the right weather conditions. Uh, I'm going to slip back in here and see if I can kill him. I never saw him again. I never got a truck camera picture of him again. Like it was like he had that one slip up, you know what I mean? And that was, and that was it. So the worst case scenario was I would have got down, boogered him up and never saw him again. This scenario was, is I tried to save the hunt for another hunt and still never saw him again. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's a, you know, you're, you're kind of in a, you know, 50, 50. Right. But I think for me, you know, the public that I hunt and stuff like that, it's like, I would probably err on the side of being aggressive because there's a chance he's going to get boogered up by someone else. Even if I don't booger him up, you know what I mean? I was going to say that. And and even, even when I have the luxury of hunting some, some decent private ground, you just never know Mm -hmm. what could happen. I mean, I've, I've lost bucks to other hunters. I've lost bucks to disease cars hitting them, whatever the case may be. And so there's no guarantees that he'll be back tomorrow. And maybe, you know, he'll follow a doe during the rut the next day or whenever it is and, you know, be on the neighbors and then he's gone. And so I like to take advantage of any opportunity that's in front of me because you just never know what the future holds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, there's no time like the present to make it happen. Right. Especially you don't want to do something silly that you know is not going to work, but if you have the conditions and things in place that gives you a a fair shot to beat that animal, then, then why not try? Yeah. You know what I mean? So we are trying to beat them at their game. And if you find that the odds are somewhat in your favor, you better jump on. It. Probably isn't <laughs> going to get much better. No. <laughs> right. Nice. Yeah. So man, in your mind, cause I know you've been, you know, ground hunting for a while. Um, are there principles of hunting from the ground that you kind of, I don't want to say live by, you know, but are there things before anyone decides to kind of jump whole hog into ground hunting, are there like fundamental things that you at the very baseline, before I get into decoying, before I do anything else, like it's these fundamental things I need to kind of have at the forefront of my mind to make sure that a hunt even has an opportunity to play out in my favor before I actually get to like the actual, you know, final end game, if you will. Yeah. A couple things stick out right off the bat. Um, wind number one, um, know your approach. Uh, number two, stay in the shadows as much as possible. Um, with being, you know, if it's flat land, obviously you don't have a, a lot of options, but I'm always finding a creek drainage to to run, to try to stay, you know, try not to silhouette yourself, basically. Right. Um, keep as low as you can at all times. Try to move as quick as you can. Try to use the wind not only for keeping yours, your human scent out of the path of any potential deer, but also if, if it's a calm day, you know, sometimes you'll have some gusty winds come up for 10 minutes. You better be ready to move and, and move during that time because you, you may wait another hour before you get another opportunity to move when the wind comes up again or something. So um, I, I have to use every tiny little terrain feature, ungulation, drainage to my advantage at all times. I have to be thinking about when I'm going to make, make my next move, how I'm going to get there. So just try to map it out ahead of time. Um, like I said, use the terrain as much as possible and, and use the wind noise more than anything uh, to, to cover up your move. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, that was a big kind of learning curve for me in, in Kansas. Was, and this year I felt like I did it much better than I did the year before. Was just 
pain. And I, I do it around here as well, but it became that much more important out there because, because of the visibility, right? It's like, and you don't, the other part too was like, I didn't realize until I got out there how much more, I'll say noise, but you want to be as quiet as possible, but, I, but how much quieter they are on the ground and how much more you can get away with because the, the sound doesn't quite travel the same. It's almost like it's a little bit more muffled on the ground right? because it's got vegetation that it has to get through, like to either get to you if a deer is moving. So a lot of times it's like, I wouldn't hear deer until they were super, super close. You yeah. know what I mean? And so, and I, and it took me like a whole, like one season of hunting in Kansas to figure that out <laughs> to where I went back next year. And I was like, Oh, I can get away with a little bit more because I have trouble mm-hmm. hearing them. They're right. going to have trouble hearing me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then if I wait for those gusts and stuff like that, now it's like, now I'm in business. I can really start to, right. you know, make some moves. Yeah. A couple of great points there. So whenever you hear a deer walking, um, you know, you're very close because they don't make a whole <laughs> lot of noise. Uh, yeah. if you can hear them step on a leaf or a, a corn stalk or whatever, um, they're probably within 30 yards, you know, I mean, yeah. they, they just don't make a ton of noise. And then you're right. You, you, don't realize how much um, more noise you're able to get away with. So like they are so used to different things, making noise, whether it be a field mouse running around or a a squirrel or whatever. I mean, they're used to hearing other things. Now they are educated enough to know that if they hear the the constant walking of a human of this, you know, yeah, they're probably going to perk up and check out what's going on. But if you just, pick your, pick your times to put your hand down for the next, you know, the next movement of the crawl or whatever. Um, they're probably not going to just, you know, think something's out of the ordinary. Right. Yeah. You can get away with more than you think. Yeah. With the wind, you know, in terms of scent, you know, are you, when you're working the wind, are you, you know, because I've heard different schools of schools of thought on this. So, you know, when I'm in a tree, you know, I'll just take the tree example to start with, like, I'm always trying to corner the wind or cut the wind, right? It's like where I want to give the deer the wind as much as possible to where it's like, I'm almost blowing up my spot, but I'm just off enough to where by the time he smells me, like he's already got an arrow, you know, or I have an opportunity right. to get it, to get a shot off the, on the ground for me, it was a little bit different. Cause like, I almost have to like have the wind in my face to make sure I'm safe, like not blowing right. it up before I even get the opportunity. Yeah. But then but then I have to like start to like, they're going to be looking in that direction a lot of times. Right. And so I have yes. to pick a point at which I have cover to where I can get moved to where I can start to corner the wind. And then it becomes a little bit more dangerous from a wind standpoint, but I have to do that to not give up my visual. Is that like a similar way that you, that you have to play it? Is that, am I even thinking about it correctly? I guess is the first question. Yeah, I think so. I, I had a, you know, I, I never stopped learning this year was kind of a big eye, eye opener on that, that loppy whitetail hunt. Um, so most people would think, okay, I'm going to hunt over this water hole. And, and, you know, I was on the ground and whether you're thinking of a still hunt or not, I'm not sure in this situation that you're explaining, but, um, it is just kind of brought, brought this up to my mind. So I set up like a hundred, 120 yards from that water hole. And most people would be like, well, there's no way in heck you're going to shoot a deer at that water hole. Cause you're 120 yards away. Well, I'm like, yeah, but I know the route he's wanting to take so that he can scent check that area before he approaches the water. And that's going to put him in my lap and it's not going to allow him to be downwind of me to smell me before he approaches that water. 
if I was hunting over that water hole, um, he would have smelled me and he would have never came in. But right. because I backed off that 125 yards to allow that buffer for him to be able to have enough room to sit check it. And I was behind him on, you know, kind of just waiting. And I kind of, I kind of learned that by accident. I didn't design it necessarily. It was the only place that I felt was good for me to set up um, and not be detected. Right. Um, it, it was, I didn't really have a great option to, for an ambush spot. And right. when that happened, it all came together. I'm like, holy smokes, I've been doing this all wrong. I, you know, <laughs> I should have been setting up 150 yards, you know, away from where I normally thought I would kill him, you know? And so just something to think about. Um, I guess did I answer your question? Cause like when I'm, when I'm spotting and stalking, um, I'm always just making sure that the only thing I'm really worried about is my sound and any deer smelling me at all. So like, as long as that wind is blowing my noise away from him or my scent, I'm good. I don't really care. There's been times where I've approached a deer, you know, with the wind perfectly in my face. And there's sometimes you can't get that luxury and you have to come in from a side wind. So Mm -hmm. it, it all depends on the situation and the train features in order, you know, to get to that animal. Right. You bring up a good point that that I was thinking about as I was, you know, thinking about our, you know, getting ready for our conversation today. And that is, you know, you mentioned still hunting and you mentioned ambush, right? And I think a lot of people, when they think of ground hunting, they think of it almost singularly, right? Where it's just like you're on the ground and that is the style, right? But the reality is, and I started picking this up just from going out west and elk hunting and stuff like that, but it really kind of crystallized for me on these Kansas trips because. I had to try almost all of them at different times for whatever the setup called for or how much I knew of a deer, like, cause maybe I glassed him before and started understanding what he was wanting to do or whatever. And so like, can you talk a little bit about, about the different types of approaches that there is for actual ground hunt? Cause you just mentioned two right there. you like, there was one that was ambush, right? And then there was one that was spot and stock, right? And so right. what are the different types or what, what kind of, you know, approaches do you take to your ground game? Yeah. So I would say, Early season for me, and I, I call that September-ish, um, it's, there's still a lot of vegetation, leaves are on the trees, grass is still tall. Um, I, I look, I, I set a lot of cameras out and I try to figure out, okay, are they coming to water? Are they going to a food source? Are they coming out of a tall standing cornfield and going to water or whatever? And, and I try to figure out that pattern early. And so that would be my ambush scenario where I'm trying to um, get as close to that bedding area as possible because we all know when it's hot, deer just don't move much. And you, you seriously have to be within almost bow range of their bedding area in order to get an opportunity because you may have 10 minutes of daylight that that animal's actually on his feet and moving, that, that he's visible. And that's what happened this year with my September hunt. And so that would be number one for me is I'm always looking for those opportunities for ambush situations. But then once, once late October to early November starts, I don't really think of ambush hunting anymore unless it's just a blatant, obvious uh, ambush situation where I, I've seen a deer do something, you know, come out of a bedding area, move to whatever. Maybe he's going to scent check a, a small pocket of weeds or timber thinking, you know, he's going to scent check this doe bedding area or whatever it is. So um, I always look for ambush spots um, during that time. If, if I know he's going to scent check a doe bedding area, um, I killed a buck is out of a tree, but it could have been done on the ground a couple of years ago where 
it was almost the same situation as the waterhole uh, moment that I just told you about. I was sitting far enough away from where I thought he was going to be sit checking that bedding area that it put him right right in my lap. So right. um, there was two points where I was like, okay, I've been playing this wind thing all wrong, and now I got to back up, get away. Um, but, it, but then trans- transitioning over to the um, spot and stock situation, yeah, that's really – I'm just looking for enough wind to cover my noise. And, you know, scent, you really have to mess up when you're spotting and stocking. And <laughs> if you don't, if you just completely don't understand how wind works, you know, you obviously don't want your, <laughs> right. <laughs> your, right, your right, scent right. going right to a pocket of deer. So um, right. that's, that's really what I focus on is, is more uh, covering my noise and, and then just staying enough out of the, the scent zone to keep my scent away from them. Right. So when you're approaching for like a spot and stock, you know, cause mm-hmm. You know, I think there's different schools of thought on this. Like, so some people want to approach where, you know, the deer doesn't really have a chance to see them. Right. Um, and I've heard, this is something that I've heard, um, Jared, I think it was from, uh, from Whitetail Adrenaline. Like he's, he's talked about a little bit where he actually started liking to approach them actually head on. And part of the reason was, was that what he started finding, and I'm just curious what your kind of thought, what your experience has been, not that either approach is right or wrong, but what he started finding was, is whenever I move, felt like when he moved horizontally across the vision, like you showed a larger profile and they could more easily pick you up because it's just like if, if you're standing in, there's light and then all of a sudden you do this, it's like the light changes, right? Cause you had something kind of go in front of it. Whereas, you know, if you're just like this kind of moving in front of the whole time, it like the depth perception doesn't really change because we know that deer don't see super well, but they see change, they see changes in movement. And so if you don't change the, right. the horizon on them and it stays consistent, it felt, he felt like yep. it was a little bit more concealing. So I'm just curious yep. what your approach is. People that are watching this video are like, what's this guy doing with his hands? <laughs> no, this is, this is exactly what I look for. And, and I agree 100% with Jared because um, there's been a lot of times where, say, there's this big side hill and I have to work down to these deer in the bottom. Um, if I just slide on my, my rear end straight at them and just, just slide a foot and wait and just keep sliding, they might be looking at us. This happened to us this year, my brother and I. Um, they were looking straight at us, but we, didn't, we were in line and we didn't go left to right at all, horizontal movements. And we just kind of kept slowly sliding down the hill until we got to where we did have some terrain at the bottom to where we could actually move on them. Um, so he, he's a hundred percent right. As long as you don't do anything abruptly, you can get away with quite a bit. And that's, that was kind of tying into the point that I had earlier where, um, do not silhouette yourself, do not horizon yourself. Don't, um, you know, if you have to hike in the opposite direction, a half mile in order to catch the drainage, you know, a quarter mile to the right. So that it brings you back to where you can be down in a bottom somewhere, do it. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, don't take it a chance to jump over a big open flat w- that's going to horizon you, um, at all, because they will pick your movement up. They, w- they, they are, you're right. They don't see particularly well, but they see movement exceptionally well. So yeah, yeah. don't, don't be, uh, moving out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. I got away. I got away with a bunch this year on a pretty sizable deer in Kansas. So it was on the last day of my hunt and I, I glassed him people have heard this story on this podcast. So I'll make this short for them for their sake. <laughs> but 
you know, I crawled up this draw because I watched him earlier in the in the trip. I knew he was going to lock down. I couldn't pick him up again once he locked down with his doe, and I knew it was going to be a couple of days before he would come back. And if I timed it right, I'd probably get one more crack at him. And so I knew roughly where he wanted to go because, like, I had watched this one spot the year before as well, so I knew that they like to cut does out into this particular area. And so my plan was to get up that draw and just actually go up the draw or the drainage and use an ambush setup on him because I knew I like I was eighty five percent sure he'd be there if, if he was off that doe. And so I crawled my way up and I was coming up out of the drainage. Well, just as luck would have it, he was at the tree I was trying to get underneath. Like when I got there, he was already there, and this is like dark. I had like twenty thirty minutes of like dark left. Now he, I could, the sil, he was silhouetted, so I could see him, but I was coming up out of the drainage from the bottom, so I had all the dark behind me, and I spent like twenty minutes within twenty to thirty-five yards of this deer for twenty minutes with, and I had no cover. I was in CRP and a ghillie jacket, and that was it. Like there were, I wasn't behind a tree, like nothing, and I just couldn't get a shot because I couldn't get. There were some saplings that were around, and I, I knew where the saplings were at, but I couldn't tell. I knew if he broke one certain spot that I knew I'd, he'd be in front of the saplings and I just had a frontal shot and I just wasn't comfortable with, with the setup, but it just goes to show. It's like, I was that close for that long to that deer and the whole point was, was because he just could not see exactly where I was at. He heard me. He thought I was another buck. So in order for me to move, to try to get behind a small little Charlie Brown tree, I did what you said, which was just sound like I don't have two feet. So I started scuffing my feet along yep. the ground. And hitting a grunt tube, just making it sound like I was a deer. He got all fired up, started snort wheezing, carrying on. Like he was just, he was not a happy camper, you know? And right. so if, you know, I, so I tried to use like all the bits and pieces. I mean, it would have been an epic hunt if I stuck an arrow in him. Cause it was just one of the most bananas experiences I've ever had. But right. just to have that encounter was super cool. But just to your point, you know, making sure that you're using, you know, the terrain to your advantage. And if you move almost at them, cause I was moving directly at him as I was coming up out of that draw and he just you know, he had no, no clue exactly what I was or where I, you know, where exactly I was. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, Log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, a couple things on that. I was, I was about, I was thinking in my mind as you were approaching, and you said he couldn't see you very well, but he could hear you. I was thinking to myself, the first thing that came to my mind was hit the ground too, and, and yeah. then you alluded to you did. So <laughs> I was like, if he can hear you, um, and he can't see you that well, make him mad, you know. And, yeah. and a lot yeah. of times, if you just hunker down and and you know maybe hit him with the ground too, he might come. But anyway. Um, the, the next thing is when you made the point that he couldn't see very well, whenever you're approaching a deer, you know, I always, I always tell myself the best scenario is a north wind because the wind's in my face and the sun's at my back. So the north side is always going to be, if you're looking north, you're always going to have the sun at your back unless it just happens to be sun up or sunset. So like in the right. middle of the day, if you're going on a stock, you know, you have the, the sun at your back. So when the deer looks up or looks toward the south, they're going to have that sun in their face. So they're not going to be able to pick out you very much. And so when you're approaching, think about that. Look behind you. Try to try to put yourself in a position that is going to make you see the angle that that deer sees. And that'll tell you, yes, I'm lit up here or no, I'm I'm pretty well in the shade or whatever the case may be. And, and you have an advantage there. So, yeah, anytime 
a south wind a south wind day is a, t- a tough one for me because mm-hmm. the deer has his back um to the south and looking north and so he has the sun in his favor on those days and so a lot of times i'm finding myself trying to approach from east or west to the sides because if i come from the north i'm i'm lit up like a beacon because that sun is right in my face so yeah use that's the sunlight great, yeah that's a great point man i never i never thought yeah. of that that's a great yeah. kind of if nothing else, you know, I mean, the bummer is, is like, you know, prevailing winds are often south, south, southwest, right? It's like, I think right. in, in Kansas, if I'm not mistaken. So that's correct. The double, the double kind of whammy on that is, is that if you have that north wind, like you probably have a front along with that. So you right. got some weather to your advantage and you got the sun to your advantage. And so it just is overall a good, a good day. Yep. Um, man, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, like how you manage patience, you know, making aggressive moves and stuff like that. Cause last year, you know, being my second year in Kansas, like I started feeling like I was starting to time things a little bit better where Mm -hmm. the first year I was there, my buddy Chad and I were there and we had like a buck that was bedded that we put a stock on and we just tried to decoy him. We tried to rattle him. We were super close and we thought he like got, must've got out of that bed and we just weren't patient enough. We got up and walked to see like where he was at. Well, we got within 40 yards of him. He jumped up. He was actually still in that bed. Right. And so last year I started getting better at kind of um, being like spending more time on my glass, understanding what the deer were doing. And then whenever I was making a move, whenever I was aggressive, it was like, it was aggressive with patient intent where I'd already put the time in. Now I can move and I know what I need to go do, but I was patiently upfront. So you can talk, can you talk to me a little bit about how you manage, you know, whether, when to go, when to lay back, when to watch, when to try to go in for a kill shot? Yeah, so uh, I wish that I could relay what goes through my head um, <laughs> and, and and show examples. I wish I could write a book on it because, right. I, and I, again, I, I make mistakes and I don't have it all figured out. So don't don't get me wrong here, but I feel like um, it can be taught. It, it can be learned, I should say, to a point. But I feel like you go back to. Um, genetics and you go back to either you have it or you don't type of thing. Like some people just have an instinct of understanding animals, annual behavior, knowing where they're going to go, knowing where they're going to be. Yeah. More time out in the field is going to make you way better. And I'm not saying that you can't learn this to a point, but um, I just feel like whenever you read a situation, um, say you have a buck pushing a doe into another little drainage or whatever the case may be, you know, and then I can see a perfect drainage leading somewhat toward that area. I'm like, I look back at my buddy with the camera, like we got to go and we got to go now. And there's times where you sprint and there's times where, no, we got to sit here. Cause you know, I don't know what they're going to do once they go over that hill. You know, I don't know what's over there. We just need to sit here and be patient. So there's no great answer for that. Unfortunately, all I can say is just try to, um, learn the terrain. The terrain features are probably the most um, learnable thing that you can mm-hmm. take control of is just understand the lay of the land, knowing where the deer might want to hang out, um, timing-wise during the day. Uh, yeah, it's it's really hard for me to tell you the perfect answer to that question because yeah. um, there's times where I'm sprinting and there's times where you know I'm saying, no, we, we can't, it's too risky right now. We got to just wait. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, what helped me the most, um, that was a big difference in last year's trip. Um, from the, from the first, uh, from the first year that I was there 
Because that was last year was probably the third year that I've dedicated like a fair amount of time to hunting on the ground. Because I took some trips to where, I mean, I even was hunting on the ground in PA in certain setups, and I was specifically looking for those setups where it's like I know no one else is going to be here because there's no trees and people around here want to hunt in trees. So if I can find a spot with no trees, you know, deer probably comfortable there. Probably going to have limited pressure, maybe no pressure in that area. And then there was the Missouri trip where I hunted on the ground a good bit, and then the two years in Kansas. And the thing that really started helping me was actually spending more time behind my behind the glass early in the trip watching even if it wasn't a deer that i wanted to kill just watching what the deer were doing like if it was a young buck does whatever how they were using the particular area that i was looking at you know and that started to help me understand where i could be aggressive where i couldn't be aggressive you know where i was going to have cover where i wasn't going to have cover to your point there's areas where it's like I would see deer. I knew they couldn't see me, so I would just pay no mind and just buzz to wherever I was right. trying to get to. And there yeah. were other times where I knew, like, okay, I don't know if there's deer around here, but I know I'm going to be vulnerable here, so I need to pump the brakes and I need to be really observant before I make any before I start walking or anything, you know? Right? Because uh, that burned me in uh, that burned me in Iowa. I had a I ended up bumping like a 180 inch deer out of a draw, and I was only probably 50 yards from him, but I didn't mm-hmm. spend enough time on my glass. To see yeah. that he was actually bedded 50 yards from where I was standing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I would have had a whole different game plan if I, if I had known that. But that was literally the first time that I was ever ground hunting was on was that trip, you know? Yeah. And so that was the biggest thing for me was just spending more time behind my glass observing. That way when I'd have to make decisions, I can make them like quickly and and kind of have an idea of what I need to do. Right. Yeah, a couple couple things that come to mind, kind of examples of what I was saying earlier about w- knowing when to move. Um, so a couple of years ago, we had a herd of mule deer and, and I know we're primarily talking about whitetails, but this is just a good example of knowing when to move. Um, so we had a herd of mule deer. There was two bucks that were kind of pushing all the does around. And I noticed that throughout the morning, it was a couple hours time frame that we, we sat behind the glass watching all the herd. Um, the, the bucks were pushing all the does around, scent checking, lip curling, you know, when a doe would bed down, um, and she would get up later, they would run over to where she was laying so that they could sit check where she was at. So I noticed that. I knew to, I noticed this one spot. The bucks just kept wanting to go back to this one doe's bedding area. She must have been pretty close mm-hmm. um, to breeding because they were just really interested in that. Well, they had they had single file went over a hill away from that spot. And we were like probably 150 yards away from that spot. And and I said to my buddy, I said, as soon as that last deer crests the hill and they go over that hill out of sight, we are going to sprint to that where that doe is bedding. And we're going to hit those yucca plants right there. And we're going to just hit the ground, sit on the ground. I said, you need to get your arrow ready because I was filming. He was shooting. And I said, chances are there's going to be a buck that at some point circles back and sit checks that spot one more time. They just are so interested in it. And I I am not kidding you. It was like. 10 minutes from the time we sat down and there was one, I mean, all you could see was antlers coming up over the hill and I'm just like, Oh my, this is working. So that was a perfect situation of just reading the animals, understanding the terrain, whenever they go out of sight for just a split second. Yeah. You're rolling the dice a little bit once in a while, but just make it happen, you know, run, do it, you know, try to get there, whatever. Uh, And then next scenario and I'll hurry. So this year on my brother's mule deer hunt, there was like a big ridge coming down the middle. And then there was like two, two paths that were like waterways, drainages on either side. Up in the middle was a cornfield on the other, on both sides were just kind of drainages. And we tried to decoy his buck in, it was a mule deer. So we had the mule deer doe, try to decoy this buck in. 
And he just, for some reason, he, he was on his own agenda. It doesn't work perfect every time. So he just decided, you know what, I, I'm good. I think I know where my girls are at because he had separated earlier in the morning and was away from them. And he was kind of on a mission to find the doe group that he had left that morning. Well, he ended up taking the right fork. And so we, we really sprinted up the left fork and tried to get ahead of him and try to go over the top. Yes, we were kind of uh, rolling the dice a little bit to kind of silhouette ourselves up top. But I knew that if we got ahead of him and if we were careful when we peeked over, then we might be ahead of him. Sure enough, we no more than crested the hill and started down on that other side where I thought he might be. He was actually coming up, up the hill to us in the middle. And we met face to face at like 60, 70 yards. And uh, luckily, thank goodness, I was walking with that doe decoy ahead of me, in front of me. Uh, And so we were behind the decoy. My brother was behind me with a bow. I had the camera and the decoy. And if we wouldn't have been single file right there behind that decoy, um, and, and that's another good tip is if, if you are using a decoy to use that, like if you're peeking up over a hill or peeking up anywhere, having that up to cover your movement will, will get you, uh, kind of a lot of insurance basically. Um, yeah. so anyway, he came right up the hill at us, came right at the decoy. My brother shot him and it, that was the end of the story. So anyway, just knowing when to sprint, knowing when to move, knowing, knowing what terrain features are there and, and when you want to peek over and whatnot. So those are two good examples of kind of when and where to go. Nice. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, you brought up, you brought up decoy and I, and I did want to talk to you about that because, you know, I started using one in, in, in Kansas a little bit and I had not this past year, but the year before I actually had a really good deer come in and, uh, I should have moved it. Uh, only I saw, so I was, I, I showed up in the dark Right. There was a new area that I wanted to go to. I was like, ah, that was just like this creek bottom and hadn't been in there before. And I was just felt like, it's just, you know, when you look at something on a map and you drive, I did a drive by of it. And actually, as I was driving by the evening before a great 10 point came out and was, was running alongside the truck. And I was like, all right, there's a good buck in here. Let me see if I can't go in here and work something up. So I went in the next morning in the dark, uh, set up my decoy, have a, I use a heads up decoy as well. and. Uh, and uh, while I'm set up there, I had a doe. Come, I was in a ghillie jacket, CRP. There was like some locust uh, saplings that were sticking up, and it was like this this creek bottom. And uh, doe comes walking right behind me. I mean, I had her at like five yards, just feeding behind me. Like I could hear her chewing. Like it was it was like I've never had so many close encounters as I've had in Kansas the past two years, and all of them on the ground where I just have like deer on top of me. It just it's mind blowing. And uh, I was getting ready to move and. When I got ready to move, all of a sudden I just saw antlers coming through the timber, and so I couldn't move. And my decoy was out in front of me. And what I really wanted to do was there was a three sets. Of, there was a set of three cedars that were kind of making a triangle that were in this bottom. I wanted to get in between them, and I wanted to kind of move my decoy close to where I saw this scrape when I glassed when I pulled the binos up. The scrape wasn't far away; it was only like thirty yards away. But I wanted to get on the other side of it. Well, he came in, saw the decoy. I snort wheezed at him. He put on a little bit of a show. Then he kind of turned and went behind this uh, down log, and. I was dropping milkweed and I could see my thermals just dropping into this bottom. Supposed to have a seven mile per hour wind that day. If I would have had any of that seven mile per hour, <laughs> I would have been clean. But with no wind at that moment, they were just dropping right to where he was going to want to walk. And he ended up busting me there. I got him at like 15 yards. I was at full draw and just no, no shot happened. But I felt like I didn't effectively use the decoy. I've used it to walk and stuff like that. I'm just curious, man, if someone has never decoyed before, how would you explain how to use decoys effectively? How do you use them effectively? 
Yeah, so first of all, deer are expecting to hear other deer. They're used to deer movement. They're used to noise. They're, they're used to deer approaching. If, if a mature buck's bedded down with a doe and he's got her locked down, they are expecting other bucks to come in to scent check that doe because she is hot. I mean, that's just right. nature. And mm-hmm. so don't worry, especially when you have a decoy up in front of you, if it's a handheld decoy, which is what, what I recommend when you're moving, um, it's okay to make noise. Um, so that's number one. Number two, like under, try to envision, envision pulling a deer out of his bedding area and try to, try to have your best guess of what he's going to do when he stands up. Sometimes it's as simple as no matter where you're at and where you're dec- where you show him the decoy or get his attention or whatever it is, they are a lot of times just going to come straight at you because they're mad. They don't want you there. Their doe is right there. That's their doe, and they're going to protect it. And so sometimes it's very simple, and they make the decision for you, and it, it's just pretty much easy. They come right at you. Um, right. Sometimes they do a bigger circle, try to get a little better wind, especially if they're, they're deer that may be um, questionable if they're dominant in the area. Maybe they're a four-year-old buck who uh, they have another four-year-old buck who's very similar, and maybe they have to fight. Maybe, maybe they've gotten their butt whooped. From another buck mm-hmm. in the area um so we had that happen a couple of times this year with whitetails where you know they didn't act like mature bucks and to me that's a telltale right there like whenever i have a question do i want to shoot this deer or not if a deer is extremely confident and he is taking no crap off anybody and he stomps in there like he is the boss then he's probably the boss because right. they've been preparing for this for the last couple of weeks, month, whatever it is. That's why they have scrapes. That's why they have social moments. That's why they spar. That's why they fight. And if they're confident, then you probably should take that animal if, if you like it. And so um, I, I guess when you're talking whitetails, I always use a buck because they're just more aggressive. Um, I'm using their aggression, their behavior, their testosterone against them. And, uh, I'm taking advantage of that. I'm trying to, you know, say, say there's one, uh, maybe you have 20 minutes of daylight left and maybe he got up out of his bed and he's, you know, he's working up this drainage because he's tried to sit check for that first dough coming into heat or whatever it is. I'm going to try to get somewhat in his path. Like if I, if I have to back out and make a big loop and run all the way around and try to get, you know, in the last 10 minutes of daylight, you know, uh, try to work in front of him. I'm going to do that with a decoy in my hand. I'm going to, when I get there, I'm going to grunt, snort, wheeze at him. And I'm going to try to get him to close that last little bit of distance so I can get an arrow in him before dark or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, my, my favorite scenario is when I see something bent down, you know, once the sun comes up and, and I feel like he's really good and settled for the day with his doe. Sometimes it takes till 11 in the morning because, you know, it's cold out. They like moving. They like walking around. Maybe he's standing there tending his doe for the better part of the morning. Um, once they get good and settled down and he finally hits the ground and I feel like he's, you know, confident in his bedding area, then that's when I make my move, especially if the, I'm waiting for the wind to come up, get that little bit of wind, you know, in my face or the sound to to kind of help me out a little bit. Um, so that's what I look for is, do I have wind? Do I have cover? Do I have shadows? Um, is he for sure bedded in a spot where I think he's going to stay? Um, are there any other deer around? Do I need to worry about bumping this doe? on my way to him, which could 
take everybody out of there, you know? So that's, those are all things that I really look for. Yeah. It's, uh, do you, how often are you using, I know you mentioned, we talked about grunting just a little bit ago, cause you were like, sound like a deer, like you did the right thing. You know, you were close. He couldn't see you. He heard you. So, you know, just pretend like you're a deer. How often are you using rattling? Cause I've, I've used it some out there. Um, and I'll say I've had, uh, mixed results with, with rattling. So I think rattling works whenever you happen to be in a in that small window where maybe a mature buck left a doe that he's already bred and he's looking for that next one. He may be thinking, okay, there's two bucks over here fighting for a hot doe. I don't have a doe anymore, and I'm going to go spoil the party, and I'm going to take that doe. Mm-hmm. So that's a, it's a small window. Now, does it work? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, I feel like a buck has to be without a hot doe. So mm-hmm. it may be early in the year, like say thanks, or, uh, I'm sorry, Halloween timeframe into October, early November, where he hasn't had, or he hasn't found that good hot dough that he's confident that he wants to be with. So I would say those, there are windows where it can work great. And, and I like using it for still hunting or ambush hunting whenever um, I feel like there's a, a buck in that pocket of timber and I don't feel confident enough that I can walk in there or crawl in there with a decoy and actually make something happen because, you know, I may bust him out of there because he's, he's laying within 50 yards and I can't see him. It's so thick. Right. So that's right, when right. rattling antlers can really be to your benefit is you're, you're maybe a hundred yards away from that area and, and you want to back up and you don't want to be intrusive and you want to pull him out. So right. great there. But, uh, whenever I have a decoy, I rarely use rattling antlers because I'm usually going in and I'm going to get close enough that I can talk to them quietly with a grunt tube or a snort wheeze. And I don't need to make a lot of ruckus with rattling it. So right. just picking those yeah. times, you know, like I said, if you can't see the animal and you don't want to go into thick cover, yeah, use the rattling antlers, try to get him to stand up, try to make something happen. I've caught a lot of bucks in with rattling horns. No, no doubt about it. Uh, yeah. but that, that was it, most of the, yeah. that was most of the deer that I brought in was exactly what you were saying. They were coming in to see who has a doe and who's fighting over a doe. There's got to be yep. a doe in here. And it's, it was always a solo buck that was, that was coming in. Most right. of the other encounters that I've had that were really good were actually ones where I was close enough that I could grunt or whatever the case was. You right. made a point there that was interesting. And this just goes back to like paying attention to the deer and what they're telling you Like you've talked about a lot during this session, you know, was, uh, you said, you know, pay attention to like, do they come in with confidence? How do they respond whenever like they hear a grunt or a snort wheeze or whatever the case is, is that the dominant buck? So that big deer that I had the encounter with last year, the first time I saw him, I was crawling up the edge of this draw and I stopped behind this like grove of cedars. And I was like, I'm just going to stop here. I'm going to glass because I know deer like to use the head of this draw from the previous year. And I'm just going to see if I can find how they're moving. If I can pick a buck out, maybe I see one, maybe I don't, you know, and I'm going to make my way to the head of this draw, but I'm going to take my time. And I'm sitting behind these cedars and I just look, glance over to my right and across the draw or across the drainage, here comes, he was like 130 inch, like eight point roughly. And I was, I was going to kill him because I was like, that's good deer for me. You know what I mean? Especially public land, doing it like in a couple days, trying to get it done. And I saw him. And so he got behind the cedars. I grunted. He, he stopped and he looked, he was like, oh, what's that? You know? Then he kind of kept walking, got behind the cedars. So then to your point, it's like I had some cover sound and I had the cedars between us. So I ran down behind the cedars to get into the, toward the bottom of the draw to where if I needed to, I could shoot across the draw to kill him, or I'm going to try to bring him in. Right. 
So as he's coming closer, he wasn't he wasn't quite coming to where I could shoot him. So I snort wheezed at him to try to get him ticked off to try to commit. Right, man, he about jumped out of his fur and like just took off. And so it was yep. in that moment I was like, "There's a bigger deer in here." You know what I mean? Yep. I was like, and it, yep. it wasn't it wasn't five minutes later, Travis, that all of a sudden like I see a tail flick like a hundred yards up ahead of me. And I was like, "Oh, some deer up there." So I threw the glass on him, and I was like, "Oh, there's three does up there." And then I just saw antlers come up above like crest like this little undulation that was in the that was in the ground i was like oh man i was like that's a big deer you know and so that was how i ended up finding him is because the little one or the younger deer you know he's probably a three-year-old 130 inch three-year-old he told me there was a bigger deer in the area you know because the way because it wasn't like i snort wheezed and he was like hey who is this it was like i snort wheezed and he was like I'm out of here. <laughs> right. So it was like, he didn't even think about it. He was like, Oh yep. yeah, I'm, I'm gone. You can, yep. I'm not messing with this guy. You, you found the satellite buck and, uh, yeah. and he was, he was confident until he wasn't confident. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's right. That's and right. We, we kind of had the same thing happen. Like I said, this year we had like, I'm going to say a four year old, 145 inch 10 come in and, and he had a doe by himself. So he was old enough to, to have a lone doe and to have one pinned down and, um, we, he was a really beautiful, tall tine basket rack buck, just amazing genetics. But anyway, um, he, he stood up and, and he came in and he would stop and he would just stay in there all curled up and, and he would, he would snort wheeze, but it would be almost quiet. Like mm. he wanted to do it. He wanted to give it a hundred percent, but he just couldn't. So like, whenever there's that hesitation there, like that told me right there, like, there is a older deer in this area and he's just not quite confident yet, you know? And so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just, if you, if you're out there and read all that stuff, you'll, it's amazing how much they tell you. Yeah. hundred percent, man. That's the, that's yeah. the beauty of it is if you just pay attention to them, they will tell you, they will, you know, uh, they will read the book to you, so to speak. Right. <laughs> But, well, man, I appreciate you doing this on a Sunday afternoon, buddy. I don't want to keep you here all Sunday. I know you got baseball practice to get to. Um, I love the conversation, man. This gives me a lot of, a lot to think about. I'm hoping to get back out. I don't know if I'll get back out there this year or not, um, but it, Kansas has, it, it has stolen my heart, if, if you will. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's probably my favorite place to hunt right now. Um, but before I let you get going, uh, let folks that are listening know where they can find out more about you, where they can follow along with your hunts and, and things of that nature. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. Um, so first off, if you come out, give me a shout. Uh, I'll be glad to help you out if you need it. Um, and uh, if if you want to continue the conversation, I know hour and a half went by real quick. And mm-hmm. if if you want to have more chats later on down the road, I'm always willing to do it. I love talking about this stuff. It flew by. For sure, so, man. Yeah. Anyway, um, so if you want to find me on Instagram, it's just Travis underscore Glassman. Uh, and then on YouTube, uh, if you just search my name, Travis Glassman, you can. It'll come right up. You can. Um, check out the videos, uh, a lot of fun stuff, a lot of intense ground hunting. There's an awesome Wyoming hunt, elk hunt last year that I, I just filmed. A uh, brother was with me and he filmed it for me. So um, anything we do, we love filming. So if you want to follow along, that would be awesome. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. Everyone should go check out the videos. Uh, you have yourself a good Sunday and uh, good luck at baseball practice. And if you need any wrestling stuff, let me know, man. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast in hell. While you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. Before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Spartan Forge, Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Genesee Beer. 
And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! Oh! Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.